Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Climate change deniers often point to the fact that, like all of science, global warming is just a theory, and there's either another explanation for these changes, or nothing out of the ordinary is happening. Yet for many people around the world, climate change isn't just an idea, but a daily, sometimes fatal reality. In the August issue of Harper's, there are three fine articles about those living at the vanguard of these changes. Richard Manning writes about megafires in the western United States. Scott Sayer traces the decisions that have led to megafires ravaging Portugal. And Alexander Jadosh describes the heat extremes, dust storms, air pollution, and drought that Iraq faces. In this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Manning, a longtime resident of Montana and contributor to Harper's, about his cover story. Here's our conversation. There, there are a lot of different things that are contributing to this, um, obviously climate change, but then also even the way that we have traditionally controlled fires. Um, there's this thing called the 10 a.m. rule, which is that if a fire starts, uh, it has to be put out by the next day by 10 a.m. And that rule was instituted in 1935. And now, a little more than 80 years later, it has created this, it's created a potential for more fires because of the dog spans of certain trees. Um, how did this science of controlled burns and allowing fires to burn evolve? And, and how precise are we now? Because, you know, it, it seems like a very touch and go thing. Yeah, exactly so, which is probably why the word precise is inappropriate <laughs> in fire science in a lot of ways. It, it really gets down to, and, and in chaotic situations, and this is nothing if not a chaotic hmm. si situation, we deal with probabilities and what's likely to happen, what's going to happen. And, and, and we're getting pretty good at understanding that mostly because of experience, mm -hmm. not because of science so much as they've let things burn in wilderness areas. And we've got a, a good history with that. Um, and the history is very interesting. Um, I, oddly enough, happen to know the old guy, and he's now dead, but he died in his 90s about 10 years ago, mm. who, who, who was really started that role in some ways. And he was a, a, a forest ranger, lived in the wilderness when he was a teenager. And, and, and literally. Mm. And so the Forest Service hired him and he became quite um, prominent in the hierarchy in the Forest Service. And he, he told me one time that he developed the role by sitting in the wilderness and looking at it. Huh. And he understood. It just came to him. All of a sudden he said, there, there should be fire here. Fire should be part of this. And that was absolutely uh, anathema to the dogma at the time. But then that rule developed, and he was prominent enough in the Forest Service that they started experiments. And they started work with it. They gathered experience beginning in the 1970s and 1980s here in Montana. Mm. And as a result of that, they found things got a lot better in wilderness when they let things burn. What sort of technologies are there to help control a burn or limit the area that it is covering besides just, you know, water or dropping sort of chemicals from airplanes and stuff like that. Yeah, so there are kind of two things going on here. One is is, is the wilderness fire policy, mm -hmm. which is generally that we let them burn. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's probably the best thing we've done. And so there, we're not applying technology so much as understanding the, the, the rules of wilderness. 
And then there's a separate area entirely outside of wilderness where people live. And, and when I say wilderness, I mean designated formal roadless wilderness like national parks, but also large wilderness areas. But outside of wilderness, um, there's a lot of technology that's developed for controlling fires. Um, prominently things like air tankers that people see airplanes flying. We now fly DC-10s on fires. So they fly up a canyon. Uh, the, the same jetliner that you, you take out of the airport out of New York will come here and, and drop retardant. Not the same one, but the same model. And so that's going on. But really, that's the stuff that gets all the attention. Mm-hmm. People look at that and say, well, that's very cool. And it is. But what's really going on is that we've got much better at information about fires, about predictive capacity, so modeling, computer modeling, things like that, weather forecasting, and understanding what a fire is going to do. So it's not this blunt instrument like an air tanker that puts a fire out so much as it's the science that understands fire behavior, predictive capacity, and ways to work with the weather systems and their terrain and and natural conditions to actually not so much manage or control the fire as manage it and herd it. They, they re- actually refer to it as herding fires to make them go where they want them to go. Outside of the government restrictions you describe in your article, how do scientists identify areas that should be burned? You know, aside from the concerns about people possibly having their houses destroyed, is there a sense that, oh, yes, this part of this national park should just, we should just let it go? Yeah, and that's that's actually quite easy on one level. So it gets back to that wilderness. Anything that is managed as wilderness is better off with fire. Mm. And so it should be burnt. There's, there's just no doubt about that among the scientists. But the, the more interesting question is, how do we identify the areas that are burnt? Right. And it turns out... Science has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's a political. It's a political decision, and it's the politics. It's the pressure that goes into it. Often, it's the pressure on uh, a timber company wants those logs, so they just as soon not see a fire burn there. Things like that are what determine what goes on. Certainly, where the population is. So, where there are houses, and often houses come right up to the edge of wilderness, those are the areas we decide we're not going to burn, largely a result of that homeowner deciding to build in that area. So the decisions of, on, on where fire goes are generally made by the, the terrain, the landscape, natural conditions, but also politics. And scientists are kind of left out of the deal. Yeah, and I mean, your article goes into the contradiction where these are very, you know, small government people, inherently small government, government is bad. But then whenever there is a fire, they get very nervous and they're like, government needs to come in and put this out immediately. And the cost is enormous. How would you describe the demographics of the areas in your article, you know, in Montana, in terms of like race and income and profession? Because I mean, I could see how Aside from just sort of being worried about losing your house, if these are people that are working with the land, if they're ranchers, loggers or whatever, um, or just using it recreationally, there might be a deeper reason to, to have that sort of contradictory response. Yeah, and, and it's very hard to characterize that and say this is exactly what we're dealing with just because... 
the landscape is so varied and and so the demographics are varied mm -hmm. and so i live in missoula montana for instance which is probably has the most interesting fire history of any town in the united states and mm -hmm. also happens to be this absolute liberal bastion i mean yeah. it's the bluest town in montana in a lot of ways and we deal with fire one way and then seven miles away where the fires really strike are rural communities that deal with a fire in a very different way mm -hmm. and that tend to be the most prominent communities those little rural towns outside of the cities especially in montana but also in california or colorado or the places that have fire and if we look at the demographics there they're they're very much as we would describe rural demographics in any place in the united states uh, and they, they look like those rural towns, uh, overwhelmingly white, mm -hmm. uh, middle income or below often. And then we have an overlay here in the West that's somewhat interesting in that they tend to be viciously anti-government, mm -hmm. uh, pro-gun people. And, and literally, in some cases, we have open carry people going around with pistols confronting firefighters because they don't think they're doing their job adequately. Uh, white supremacists. Lots of those guys, uh, um, survivalist people running around in camouflage clothing. It's a weird mix. And so when a fire starts burning, that mix gets really volatile mm. and really interesting to watch it happen. But the bottom line of that is what you point out, that these anti-government people are, are, are want government off their back. That's why they live out in the woods in the first place until that fire starts burning. And then they say, okay, bring in that multi-million dollar air tanker, put the fire out to save me from my own decision for building here in the woods. Right. And I mean, I think what you're describing is not just a anti-government pose, but I feel like a lot of people in rural areas just don't want to be around other people people period in a way that is a very yeah. sort of distinctly uniquely american thing and just don't want any neighbors whatsoever and at the end of the day it is a huge cost to everybody to to protect that right so to speak and you talk about how because these fires are put out in places like montana fires start to pop up other places where they normally wouldn't specifically the fires in california how might other areas of the U.S. that are not the chaparral, like in California, or like the forests of Montana, be affected if these fires continue to be put out prematurely? Yeah, and, and that's actually pretty interesting and something that gets us into global warming. So we don't know the answer to that, but we have some suspicions. Mm. And some of those suspicions are drawn from um, history. So um, we talk about megafires in the West now, but in fact, there's a history of megafires going back to the beginning of the 20th century. And some of those were in the upper Midwest in the United States. So Minnesota and Michigan had some of the largest fires ever. And then those areas became greatly tamed through agricultural land, the roads and farms and all the trees got cut down. And, and then there was a reversal. So mm -hmm. uh, particularly in places like New Jersey, um, New York, upstate New York, but upstate uh, Michigan and Minnesota, Wisconsin, all those places are reforested now. 
and we're seeing global warming. So we're likely going to see a return to a fire regime in those areas. Mm. I mean, probably not as severe as the West because they're more accessible. But certainly we're seeing more widespread fires, even in places like the Carolinas and Florida. So in many ways, what we're writing about and living and experiencing in the West now is the vanguard. Mm. And that other places will come to deal with these issues, especially as global warming progresses. And one of the things that's going on is that the northern tier of states is um, seeing global warming much more rapidly than the rest of the world. So Montana's wa- warming at about twice the rate as the rest of the world. And so that puts us in the vanguard. So what we're, th- what we're dealing with here, you're going to be dealing with in some ways, not as severe, but more or less. You're talking about humanity taking something away and then trying to put it back. In your article, you talk about taking um, the land back to these pre-settlement conditions through stuff like fires. Does that create other problems for people in these rural areas or for city dwellers, for instance, like animals crossing into places where there are people or just other types of chaos, let's say? Yeah, and in some very interesting ways. And so wilderness always requires some accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the biggest problem that it's being created is smoke. So uh, there, there's no way that we can do the kind of fire regime that's required in, in the Western United States and probably was historical without there being a lot of smoke. And people aren't used to that. And in fact, our health department is issuing warnings on these natural fires saying your air is unhealthy today. And it, it, and it is. There's no doubt about that. So there, there has to be some tolerance from that and some understanding of those things. But as far as animals, it, it's really interesting what goes on with animals. And it turns out that um, that's our best indicator we're doing something right in wilderness is that most of the wildlife populations are doing extraordinarily well. And people think, well, okay, the the fire is going to kill a lot of them. It does. But mortality is usual among animals, wild animals. What really counts is that their habitat comes back and they do better later on. And so we're seeing some really interesting knock-on effects from the fire in wilderness areas, like a really huge increase in the number of grizzly bears in the northern Rockies, just because their habitat is better. They're doing much better. Well, as a result, they're starting to show up in places they weren't before. Just like you say, they're showing up in where where people are, and we're going to have to learn to deal with that in some way. But I think that's a pretty good problem, <laughs> and and uh, and, I, and a lot of people do here like seeing the grizzly bears. So yeah, yeah, there are going to be a lot of adjustment to be made. But that's that's global warming, folks. I mean, it really is where we're headed, and and things are not going to be the same. Could you elaborate on that? Because again, you know, so much of American life is a manicured lawn, a, you know, you're getting clean water from the tap, you have clean water uh, in your toilet, you have all of these amenities on demand, climate controlled um, in your car, into your office, back to your home, at your gym, wherever. Can you describe what the impact of global warming might look in a more suburban area? That's what's the most interesting part of this story in a lot of ways for me, is that 
the denial that goes on that that people people say yeah global warming's coming but by the way could you fix this problem and make my life stable and that's the political pressure we're seeing everywhere in suburbia but everywhere else in the rural communities in the liberal cities every place you go people say yeah go ahead and fix this problem and i understand global warming is coming no, that's, you're not understanding global warming is coming. You're not understanding that life is going to be severely disrupted. Yeah. And when we get down to talking about things like deaths, people are dying as a result of global warming. And it's not just in these fire landscapes. And we don't see that many deaths. We do. I mean, we see deaths every year as a result of this. But if you think of things like the hurricanes that have become far more frequent in the Gulf Coast and the, the number of deaths and, and, and houses destroyed and all those things, we say, well, that's, that's a catastrophe. And, well, that's only the beginning. That's really the only the beginning. And it's going to get really severe. That's what we mean by global warming. And I think that fire is valuable in a way because it teaches us that very thing. That it, it, we, you can't be in denial if you live in this landscape. I know a lot of conservative people in the West, not, and not a single one of them would dispute the reality of global warming here, as they do nationwide. But here they don't, because we live that way. We live on the edge of it. We, it's a reality. It's part of our life. And it has been for 30 years now. Why do you feel like climate change has become this wedge issue for people because again the objections that oh these wind farmers are going to make a lot of money off of this these solar panel people are going to make a lot of money off of this it's like well doesn't oil and all the things that are actually killing the planet aren't those the actual like trillionaires and billionaires among I, yeah i mean I, I, how how do you do you have a sense of how that evolved yeah it's it's the bubble i mean that's a really useful term that's coming out of our political discussion these days that they say, well, these people live in the bubble. Well, that's true. I mean, there, there have been a lot of propagandists who have worked very hard to put people in that bubble. And it's possible to do that if you live in an area where the climate's controlled and the streets are, are paved and all those things. So you can be separate from reality. Now, if you look at our political leadership, I mean, they are completely divorced from reality as I experience it in the natural world. I mean, I live next to wilderness. And so you can't be in denial. You can't be in a bubble when you see the effects of it every day. You can't be in denial when you see the fire behind your house coming that nobody can put out. We have become so separate from nature and we live a virtual reality now and the term is is meaningful mm -hmm. and people live in that virtual reality and therefore they can think anything they want and yeah nature has a way of correcting those <laughs> those 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 kinds of assumptions you describe sort of the futility of trying to legislate against those or you know, making areas uh, more fireproof. Are there steps that people in other parts of the country could take to reduce the possibility of fire? I mean, aside from sort of like tearing all the buildings down and, and rebuilding them? Oh, sure. Yeah, th there are pretty reasonable steps that, that and in fact, um, uh, they've been on the books, they've been specified, laid out for a number of years. 
Um, and, and we talk about those in the story quite a bit, but it, it, they have things like a, a better building code, for instance. So you can build, build houses to be fireproof or relatively fireproof. And, and it has simple things like building materials. So what, what do you make your roof out of? For instance, you don't make it out of cedar shakes. And cedar shingles, has, as is commonly done where I live or in every place else, you make it out of steel. And you have a, you have a stucco house as opposed to a wood-sided house. Um, you take care of thinning trees around your house. You, do, you, you take responsibility for your actions. People have been urged to do that for a long time, and it's stunning how few people do it. In developing this story, I was in one of the subdivisions that was really threatened by a fire. I mean, it, it was incredible how close that fire was and how bad it was. And my guide through that subdivision was the fire chief for that town. And he was showing me specifically this house was thinned and this one was not. And this one's a good house. This one's a not a bad house. What he didn't show me was his own house, which was in that subdivision, which was not fire protected. And he was the fire chief. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's the way it is. So people don't take responsibility for their actions. And and here are the anti-government people not taking responsibility for their own actions and expecting government to bail them out on the backside of it. Do you feel like the experiences that fire chiefs and other people fighting these fires in the West is being disseminated nationwide? Is there a nationwide sort of awareness or is it just like, oh, that won't happen here sort of a thing going on. It is, and and somewhat slowly. And the vanguard for that really is California. So if I go back, oh, eight, ten years, California had a really bad year with fires when uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was still in office. Mm -hmm. And and I clipped, at the time, I saved one of his speeches to fire victims. and, and, And his message to those people was, we need to rebuild as rapidly as possible here. These places, these houses. And he said, wait a minute, you should know by now that they're going to burn down. It's going to happen again. It's happened 10 times. Why are you doing this? Well, now if we look at Governor Brown a year ago um, said that fire is the new normal. And that's the message we need to say. This is the new normal. Government is not going to save you from this, that we need to implement things like a better fire code and do those things. So, yeah, in places like California, it really is sinking in. Where I live, it's sinking in. People are getting it. They're understanding. They're starting to take measures. And they're starting to learn to learn the fact that we have to live with fire. But we'll see how it percolates through the, the, the discussion otherwise. What percentage of these fires are man-made versus how many just sort of begin, you know, naturally or unnaturally because of global warming? Well, that's pretty hard to to parse out. Um, and and so usually when we ask that question, it's in terms of, well, how many of these are human caused as, you know, carelessness, fireworks, that kind of thing, versus natural caused by lightning. Um, we actually know those numbers, and they're pretty interesting, but they're kind of misleading in a way, too. So um, uh, on average, there are about 61,000 wildfires a year in the United States caused by humans. And there are only about 10,000 caused by lightning, so one-sixth. But almost all of the ones caused by humans are on the, the southeast United States and in the northeast. And the fires in the West are about even number of cause, 
But the acreage, the acreage burned is far greater by lightning fires, lightning caused fires. So they're natural fires that are here. And there's a reason for that. Uh, human caused fires are where things are real accessible by definition. There are humans there. So there, people can respond quickly and put them out and all that stuff. But in um, uh, the lightning-caused fires tend to be inaccessible, and they can't put them out, and they they start and burn a lot of acreage. So what that's saying is, you know, this the, the fires themselves were going to happen regardless. But global warming certainly has made those fires far, far more severe than they ever were. You describe these fires that were earlier in the 20th century. How good are the accounts of those? How reliable are the accounts of those? Because, again, it seems like because we are only operating with a relatively short amount of time that we understand how these things work. How, how reliable are those characterizations? Yeah, they're actually quite good. Uh, people were real concerned about it at the time, but they also were in places where people lived. Right. So there were accounts, and they're not as scientific as our accounts today. They can't say, well, it, the, the detail that we have because of things like GIS mapping and computer mapping and things like that. But the human accounts are real. I mean, and the people actually sat down and wrote down their stories and, and told about the people dying. And there was one in, in northern Michigan where people... As, as, as they attempted to escape by a, a train, and so they got into freight cars, and the train got trapped, and the people were cooked inside the freight cars. Oh my God! Um, so, so you can imagine the accounts of that, and and that that one happened to happen happened to occur within sight of my great grandfather's farm, and it's a real famous fire, but nobody ever talked about it as I was growing up. And and here in the West, fire is part of our culture, and people talk about fires all the time. And so you can go into a bar here and start a conversation about the 1910 fires and be talk to somebody who's pretty well informed about it. It's pretty interesting, the way it is. But um, what's more interesting is what went on before then, and we're only starting to piece that together is pre-settlement. Um, and Na- Native Americans use fire. All the time. It was their dominant technology for settling North America, what is now North America. And they were a fire culture, and they learned how to burn. And so it was just part of life for them. And and, and, and that's also quite interesting, what we're filling in about understanding that, you know, our attitude toward fire is an aberration in human history and natural history as well. I mean, we're freaks about it, and this is only about 100 years. We can probably correct about a hundred years of, of misconceptions. Could you describe how fire was used as a tool by Native Americans? Yeah, and it depend on the terrain and where they were, but generally um, uh, they understood something real important that, and, and this is if, if you're a hunter-gatherer, if you're living off wildlife, then you want to promote wildlife, and it turns out fire did. So if you had an area that was heavily forested, there was not a lot of wildlife there. But if you burned it, there's this profusion of new growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the tender new growth is what things like elk and deer like to eat. And so they show up. And it's easier to hunt them because there's not a lot of trees and stuff like that. So they burn periodically. But they also burned understanding natural fire cycle. So when we talked about lightning-caused fires here, and they're, they're real. Well, they understood that if you actually set that same terrain on fire in the spring, um, it would burn gently and it wouldn't be devastating. And so when lightning came in the summer, 
um, when things are dry, much drier, mm -hmm. then the, um, the, that area had already burned, and so they had essentially unwound that catastrophe so it didn't really harm them as much. And they really understood that very well. Yeah, I think people underestimate how we used to live with the land or even like canal systems that are so advanced in quote unquote primitive culture is like the, the way in which that water interacted with the rest of the land is very advanced. And what you said is great that, you know, we've only been living with this perception of fire as an aberration for a hundred years. So it is absolutely something that we can turn back the clock on. You know, you were describing this process of burning in the spring Therefore, in the summer, the fire is not as bad. So there's a clear interaction with the rest of the environment there. How do fires sort of set the stage for other natural disasters? There was a fire in Buffalo Creek in Colorado, which baked the soil. And then two months later, there was intense flooding because the ground could not absorb the water. And then all the silt and sort of junk from the fire got into the water supply, which is totally bizarre but also something that happened because of you know where people were living yeah absolutely and that's something we're coming to deal with and even that's even that's a result of global warming in some ways and i'll get to that in a second but yeah and an even more pronounced case was in santa barbara last year in the california fires where i think there were more houses lost in the mudslides after the fire than in the fire itself i think that's right wow but certainly and there, a, a lot of houses were lost in mudslides afterwards. So what happens is that, that, that vegetation often stabilizes the ground. And when you remove that vegetation, things tend to break loose a bit. And, and that, that's natural. That, that's occurred. What is unnatural about that is our fires are burning so much hotter now because as a result of global warming and the excess fuels from fire suppression. And so I've been in, in landscapes before and, and where you can literally walk for days, you know, four or five days in nothing but ankle deep ash. Um, and I've seen that. And, and, and that happens. Well, that's unnatural in a way. Pre-settlement fires didn't burn that hot and that intensely and that extensively. So that has an effect of sterilizing the soil when they burn that hot. And as a result, it becomes far more unstable than before. And in a natural fire regime, there was less of that. It did occur, but there was less of that. So that's a real problem now. And so those knock-on effects are going to continue to plague us, our water supplies and everything else that goes on, just as you pointed out. There's a real interesting thing here in adaptation that I've seen up close. And it's in this dinky little subculture of, of firefighters. Um, and, and they're fascinating people. I've gotten to know firefighters, and I've known them for 30 or 40 years, and literally some of them that long. And there's this common thread among them, and, and they're really interesting people. Most of them 30 years ago were guys. Now there are women involved, and they, they start as smoke jumpers. And smoke jumpers are really tough characters. I mean, it's physically demanding, it's dangerous work, and boy, did they have swagger. Those guys were macho as all get out, because they, they were tough. They, they, they kind of earned it in a way. They were like soldiers. But that culture universally started out as those people, and something happened to them along the way. And you will see this story again and again and again in every one you meet, that he got the swagger knocked out of him in a fire, hmm. that... They, they, they thought they knew everything. Then they went out and saw a fire. They saw the changes under global warming. And they said, 
uh-oh, this is really different than our expectations. And they became humble. Yeah. <laughs> that was the interesting thing. There's this humility among firefighters that I've never seen in another culture anyplace. That they say, no, we can't do that. We're going to have to learn to live with this in different ways. And that swagger is gone from that culture. It was a universal aspect of that culture in the 1960s and 70s. Now it's gone. Hmm. Those guys are the humblest guys I know. It's pretty interesting. Those guys and women now, and they, they will tell you exactly the same thing. Every one of them will say, no, no, I stuffed a body bag one day. I learned this the hard way. Why are there still people who fight fires? Because there seems to be, you know, with drones or some, it's all this, you know, fire retarded uh, material that there could be some sort of technology made to that people don't have to put their lives on the line. Yeah, that's what everybody thinks. So they'll take care of this with aircraft and they'll send in helicopters and tankers. And tankers, the air tankers that we see all the time are really political theater. <sighs> What's going on is they're, they're modifying the politicians and the homeowners saying, boy, we're doing something really cool about this fire. They're not doing much at all. There's a role for air tankers. But every knowledgeable firefighter will tell you exactly the same thing. There is only one way to fight that fire in that terrain, and that's put boots on the ground. You have to put people there because there, it needs judgment. It needs control. It needs um, people flexibility to move in places. They're really inaccessible to machines. And so without people on the ground, they don't get fought. Nothing could ever change that. Well, what will, will be more true is that we'll stop fighting fires. That that, and that's what's happening in that culture among firefighters. They're they're learning to withdraw. Thank you so much. This was uh, excellent. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check out an upcoming talk at Book Culture on Monday, July thirtieth, with Jeff Weaver. Weaver, manager for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, will be discussing his book How Bernie Won inside the revolution that's taking back our country and where we go from here. All events are free and open to the public. Visit bookculture.com for more information. The Harper's Podcast is produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Run by Febrifuge, all rights reserved. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation. Through long-form narrative journalism and essays, visit harpers.org to subscribe.